All right, I want to ask you please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7. <clears throat> a couple of days ago, I went to a pastor's fellowship in Queens. And before I left, Ashley was speaking with me and she said, I have a gift for you for one of the people who's going to be there. And she held it up and she showed it to me. It's in a little bag. And she said, this is it. I'm putting it right here. Just don't forget it. And of course, I jokingly said, I would never. Well, about half an hour later, as I was driving on the LIE, I got a text from Ashley that just said, you forgot the gift. Well, in at least some areas of my life, I am a forgetful person. It's not that I want to forget these things. In fact, when Ashley said that I should take the gift, I said I would, and when I said that, I meant it. And I had every intention of doing it. There was nothing in my heart that was opposed to it. I, I desired to give it. In fact, eventually, someday, if I go back to Queens, I would still love to give this person a gift. But my attention got shifted to something else, and I just, I just forgot. Over the past several weeks, the camera lens of the text that we've been going through has followed the Ark of the Covenant as it's been passed around like a hot potato. From Shiloh, it went to the battlefield, and then from the battlefield, it was captured by the Philistines and went into Ashkelon and into the temple of Dagon. And then from Ashkelon, it went to Gaza, and from Gaza, it went to Ekron, where the Philistines finally wisened up and said, we can't keep this here, let's get it out. And so they put it on a cart, and it was sent back to Beth Shemesh, and there, 70 people either looked into or inappropriately at the ark and were killed by it. So they said, we need to get it out from away from us. And so they sent it to another place called Kiriath-Jerim, where it's going to remain for many years. Which brings us now to where we are in our text, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Please follow along in your own copy of the Scriptures as I read aloud. This is God's Word. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So... The people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines, and the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. 
As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that they were against the Philistines, that day against the Philistines, and the Philistines threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzvah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzvah and Shen. And called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Let's pray and ask the Lord that he would bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. But moments ago, we, we sang and we asked you to speak. Speak, O Lord. We ask that today, through the word, you would apply to us all that you have for us. Father God, I ask that as we come to this passage, this passage that I think I have always overlooked, I ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand the incredible value of knowing you, having a right relationship with you, and remembering Jesus Christ. And we pray that in the precious name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Our approach to the text today is going to go something like this. First, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to share with you four observations about what's going on in this passage, and then we're going to take those observations, we're going to take what we've learned, and we are going to use that understanding to help us zone in on the main point of this passage, which is to remember the Lord. Observation number one, consider the ministry of Samuel. Considering the book is named after Samuel, we actually haven't seen much of him lately, and in fact... We've only seen him actively do something in one chapter. If you go back to the beginning of the book, he was promised. Hannah was excited and and desired for him to be there, but he wasn't there yet. And then when he finally is born, he doesn't do anything but get handed over. And then in chapter 3, we actually see him take action. The Lord calls him, and he says, Here I am. Your servant is listening. And that's pretty much it. And then the only thing we get is a summary line, that he had left that place and he began to speak to all of Israel what the Lord had told to him. So we don't really know much about what his life was like as an adult until the next chapter, chapter 8, where we are now, he's going to be old. The very first line of chapter 8 is, then Samuel was old. So this is really the best picture that we have of a normal day in the life of this man, the final judge of the people of Israel. It's interesting because at the end of this chapter, we're going to find this little phrase a couple of times that says, and he judged Israel. Uh, The entire construction of this chapter should be very familiar to you if you've been reading through the Bible reading plan at the church because we've been going through the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is written likely by the same person who wrote, wrote the book of 1 Samuel. And what you see here is this is the exact same way all of the judges were written about. And there's a summary line that will describe their ministry as an epilogue at the end of their ministry. 
So here what we see taking place is this is the end of the explanation of the regular ministry of of Samuel. And then in the next chapter, we're going to get into the relationship between how Samuel operates in relationship to the kings. So as we move forward, the only aspect of Samuel's ministry that we are going to see is how he relates to Saul and to David. So this chapter serves as the best picture of his actual earthly ministry. Observation number two, notice that this chapter is a total reversal. One of the ministries of our church is the monthly women's Bible and brunch. And in that group, the women are learning how to better read and understand their Bibles. They're using a book that they're going through, and it teaches them hermeneutics to be able to go to the Scripture and understand it much better. And one of the things that the ladies learned a few weeks ago was that there is a tool that is commonly used in the Old Testament called a a chiastic structure or a chiasm. It sounds complicated, but it's actually very simple. It simply means that there's a bunch of facts or a bunch of events that happen in one direction, and then they peak, and then those same things happen in the opposite direction. It was a mnemonic device that the Hebrew authors would often employ to be able to help you remember what was going on in the story. And actually, 1 Samuel chapter 4 through 7, this huge passage is one massive chiastic structure. Now, I'm not going to take you through a detailed description of it, but what I do want to do is show you the starting point and the ending point and show you that where they went results in an absolute reversal. In chapter 4, we see that the Israelites experienced the most costly battle that they ever had during the entire time of their existence between the exodus and the exile. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of soldiers dead. Many households had no husbands or fathers. There was an entire generation of people growing up with no dad. And the Israelites, we see this is how they respond. Look at what happened. This is the order of chapter 4. Well, the Israelites looked at the ark as a superstitious object, and they said, let it save us, chapter 4, verse 6. And then the Israelites were, quote, struck down by the Philistines, verse 10. And as a result, it summed up the whole chapter in a single word, Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed. Let it save us, we are struck down, the glory of the Lord has departed. Now in chapter 7, we see the absolute reversal of that. The Israelites say in verse 8, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And then we see the the Philistines, not the Israelites, are struck down in verse 11. And the result is summed up once again in a single word, till now the Lord has helped us. What's at the heart of this absolute reversal is the key to understanding this passage. How did these things go from absolute destruction to victory? How did this shift happen? How did it happen that these Israelites were first rejecting the Lord, and then the Lord allowed them to experience the horrific defeat on the battlefield to being absolutely victorious against the Philistines, their great enemies? Well, we find the answers to that in Observations 3 and 4. Observation 3 This time, the Israelites really repented. There's a cycle that takes place in the book of Judges. Uh, If you've been following the Shepherd Notes, you know that this cycle has existed. The Israelites fall into idolatry, and then the Lord raises up an, an enemy like the Philistines to attack them. And then in their suffering, they cry out to the Lord, 
And as an answer, the Lord raises up a judge on their behalf to defend them. And then the judge, in one way or another, leads them into victory. So then the nation once again worships the Lord, at least for a time, before starting that cycle all over again. And that cycle happens 12 times throughout the book of Judges. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Israelites should have known that their suffering at the hands of the Philistines was a way that God was showing them to get rid of their idols. It should have led them to repentance. They should have called out to the Lord for help. But instead, they went and they got the ark and they attempted to force God's hand to take him into battle to fight on their behalf. Instead of destroying their idols, they just decided to force God to fight with them. Now, obviously, that backfired in dramatic fashion. But now that we've arrived at chapter 7, notice those idols are still all over the land and they are in people's households. Over the course of 20 years, Samuel taught against pagan idolatry. And at the conclusion of two decades of ministry. Now, just to be clear, this is two decades of ministry after the ark of the Lord had been returned. We don't know the timeline of how, how long he had been preaching against these things prior to the ark being taken. But at least we know for at least 20 years, Samuel was out there consistently every year making a circuit to all of the cities in this part of Israel, telling the people who would gather for, for the festivals, you must turn away from these idols. And at the conclusion of those two decades, he said to the people, if you are returning to the Lord, like it appears that maybe you are, if you really are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord God and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. This was not a rapid revival. This was a long term work of the Lord through a man who consistently and faithfully and in a dedicated way proclaimed the good news about the coming Lord. It took 20 years before the people were collectively ready to repent. But when they did, you can see that it was genuine. Here's how. First, we see that they directed their hearts to the Lord. Notice, that's what Samuel told them to do. Direct your hearts to the Lord. He tells them that on two occasions, and in direct response to that, they get rid of their idols, and it says that they served the Lord only. Now, the Holy Spirit inspired the author of this passage to say that in this instance, they actually did serve the Lord only. That is one of the rare occasions where their idolatry was actually reversed in the Old Testament. Now, secondly, they confessed their sin, and in verse 6, it said, we have sinned against the Lord. Now, genuine repentance must include confession of sin. If you have never confessed of sin, you have never repented. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins. James chapter 5 commands us to confess our sins one to another. So the second thing you need to see here is that they did. They confessed their sin. But third, not only did they confess their sin, they recognized that their sin was against the Lord. They said, we have sinned against the Lord. Look, anybody can confess their sinners. Anybody can say that, especially in a general way. Oh, yeah, I, 
I'm not perfect. Almost everyone knows that they have royally messed up at some point in their life. But it is vital to understand this very important clarification about confession and repentance. Genuine repentance is not just feeling bad about something that you've done. It's not just experiencing guilt. Genuine repentance will never actually occur until you realize that you have done something against God himself. You have not just sinned against the people around you, although that probably is true. You've sinned against a holy God, the God who formed you, the God who gave you life and breath, the God who is currently sustaining you and displaying patience by not destroying you. You have sinned against him. When the people of Israel confessed, they recognized that their idolatry, their sin, was targeting God himself. And the fact that they verbally acknowledged to one another and before God himself that they offended the Lord, that's a good sign, a good indication that they actually got it. The fourth evidence that their repentance was legitimate is that their lives then actually changed. In this chapter, we see them put away their idols. We see them put their trust in the Lord. And they follow the instructions of Samuel to the letter. And the Lord is the one who put Samuel as judge over them, and now they're listening to their leader. And when the threat of destruction by the Philistines came, think about this. If you had been used to worshiping an idol, and you believed that those idols had power, and then an enemy army was knocking on your doorstep to kill you and your wife and your children, don't you think you would do anything possible to save yourself? If you really had faith in those idols, you would pull them right back out and you'd pray to them once again. But notice, they don't. They did continue to worship and follow and believe in and trust God alone. And when this enemy army comes, they do not look to anything, including their own strength, to help them other than the Lord. So what happened? Well, as Jesus said, a tree is known by its fruit. The imagery of that fruit tree is very important. You see, the, the works that we see in the lives of these people, these works are being displayed over time. The imagery of a fruit tree is an imagery of time. Fruit takes time to grow. You do not just plant a seed in the ground and immediately expect to see fruit. The metaphor that Jesus is providing there is that there is a long-term product of a true disciple. And that long-term product is going to be what, be what John the Baptist called fruit in keeping with repentance. It's a life that is gradually more and more in line with God's commands. The Israelites in this chapter, they are bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. They are living out what they were told to do. They are actually acting in accordance with the covenant. But their repentance is not ultimately what caused their success in this chapter. It certainly is a piece of what's happening here. But what actually occurs is something else. What actually caused the reversal from defeat to victory is something else. Because if all they do is ask God for help, if God says no, they still lose. But the fourth observation I want you to see here from the passage is the sacrifice of the lamb. In chapter 4, the Israelites took matters into their own hands. They thought, look, there's no way we could possibly lose this battle. And if you remember, when Hophni and Phinehas, the wicked sons of Eli, carried that ark into the camp, do you remember how they responded? 
It says that the entire war camp called out with a loud shout. It was loud enough that miles away, the Philistine armies heard it and were terrified. And actually, that's what invigorated them to fight even harder and destroy them. They were all barking no bite. They cheered and rejoiced and celebrated because, yes, look, the ark is here. We now will win. They didn't realize that God wasn't fighting for them. They didn't realize they were fighting in their own strength. And therefore, when they went out to battle, they failed miserably. The difference between utter defeat and absolute victory was the sacrifice of the spotless lamb. Look at verse 9 again. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And here's the key line. And the Lord answered him. Until this point, the Lord has not lifted a finger to help the people of Israel in this book. The only person that he has helped so far in this book is Hannah. And now the entire nation is gathered together at Mitzvah. They are in a position where they are sitting ducks for the Philistine army. They didn't come with weapons of war. They came there to repent. And now they are going to be destroyed. So they call out to the Lord. Samuel sacrifices an animal. And it's as he is putting that lamb to death that the Lord answered him. Notice the timing. The timing here is absolutely essential when it comes to seeing what's going on. Verse 10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines, and he threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. When did God save his people? When the lamb was slain. They cried out to God to save them, and the response was to send a lamb to the slaughter. Obviously, that lamb was just a lamb. It was just an animal. It didn't actually buy favor for the people before God. But that innocent animal was a picture of the true and better lamb that would come and that would be sacrificed on their behalf. Notice that in chapter 4, when the people raised that large shout on their own behalf, well, then they were cut down in the bloodiest loss that the Israelites would ever face. But when the, the lamb was being sacrificed, the people didn't shout. Notice that it says the Lord thundered with a mighty sound against the Philistine. Now, I have, to, I have to be honest. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I don't know what that sounds like. I don't know what that was like at all. Uh, most scholars suggest that it was probably something like actual thunder. Some say that the language may indicate that it was a heavenly yell. Look, I don't know enough Hebrew to tell you which of the smart guys are right. But what I do know is this. When the true Lamb of God when the better sacrifice was being crucified, we read in Mark chapter 15, verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now, you don't know what that loud cry was if you just read the book of Mark, but if you flip over a little bit to the book of John, you read that the actual words that he cried were these. In Greek, one word, tetelestai. In English, three words, it is finished. That is the loud cry that he spoke at the cross. And with that cry, Jesus declared victory over sin and death and the devil. He declared victory for everyone who would ever look to him in faith and salvation. Look, we're not in mitzvah. We're not with a bunch of Israelites at a place where we are sitting ducks. We're in a worse position without Christ, without the cross. We are just waiting for that day when somebody is going to put us in a box and our body is going to go into the ground 
and then we're going to stand before the judgment seat of God. If you have an enemy, you want your enemy to be weak. The worst enemy that you could possibly have is the God of the universe. And the problem that all of us have is that from the time we are born, we stand as enemies of the God of the universe. And if we die in that state, we will have to stand before the Lord and we will have nothing to say to him except to acknowledge that we are guilty. We stand in a worse place than the, than the Philistine army breathing down our neck. In this passage, the Lord cried out with a loud thunderous cry and defeated the Philistines. He did that by confusing the Philistines and we don't really know what that means exactly. Most people that write about this think that it means that they fought themselves and started killing each other. Well, it's very possible. That happens multiple times in the Old Testament, especially during the time of the judges. So very possibly that's true. But certainly what we know is this. In our lives, we have a king who has cried out on our behalf. His victory cry was a cry of anguish, but a genuine cry of, of defeat of his enemies. Now, hope, hopefully we have a good sense of what this chapter is about now. And what we're going to do is we're going to take all that stuff that we just heard, all that stuff that we just learned, and we're going to funnel those four observations into helping us understand what is being taught as the main point of this chapter, which is to remember. As Christians, we're called to have a disciple, a disciplined thought life. The commands about this in the Bible are everywhere. The commands to have a disciplined thought life are all over the New Testament. They are expansive. We're told how to think about everything. We're told how to think about ourselves in places like Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, which says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, which, by the way, are matters of the mind. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. It literally means to think of others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, a matter of the mind, but also to the interests, the desires, wants, and needs of others. Have this in mind, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Also, very similar to that, Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says, For the, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. You are told about how to think about yourself, especially in relation to others. We're also told how to think about the future. Whenever the New Testament uses the word hope, it's not speaking about a wish that word hope literally means to train your mind about thinking about the future. It's speaking about the fact that we are called to mentally consider, to think about the fact that we have been given unbreakable promises by God. Hope means that we are to think about the future in such a way that we are confident that God is going to do everything that he said he was going to do. And as Colossians chapter 3 verse 2 puts it, set your minds on things above not things that are on the earth. We are told how to think about the future and even about heaven in the present. Contrary to the slander that is often said against Christians, Christianity is a contemplative religion. It, it is supposed to be. Fourteen times in the Gospels, when Jesus is having conversations, he responds by saying to people, whether the Pharisees or his disciples, what do you think? Romans chapter 12, verse 2 teaches us to renew our minds because by doing so, we're able to discern the will of God. We are even told in 1 Corinthians to put on the mind of Christ. None of this comes naturally. It is hard work to be thoughtful. It is hard work to be contemplative as a Christian. It is war against the natural draw of our minds to be lazy and to search out entertainment. We live in a time when it is so 
easy to be distracted by every form of media imaginable, and by podcasts, and streaming, and social media, and YouTube, and audiobooks, and a billion other things that are vying for the attention of your mind. The word muse means to think. The word amuse means not to think. And your brain, just like mine and everyone else's, is going to crave to be amused. It is going to crave not to think if you do not discipline your mind. This is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 gives us a broad but consistent set of things that we should be thinking about. He said, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, this list indicates that the most deadly battlefield for your sanctification is what's going on between your ears. We are called to think in a particular way. And not only that, but the Bible requires mental discipline as well as faith. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit indwells you. Yes. He gives you the ability to comprehend the scriptures that otherwise you are completely unable to, to understand. The Bible was just opaque to you before knowing him. But then as you actually have put your trust in him and he has saved you and given you life, he's given you eyes to see you can open that scripture and begin to understand it, but it requires that you actually do it. It requires that you actually meditate upon it and strive to grasp it. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7. He has written this letter to Timothy, and he's telling Timothy very clearly, do not let this go in one ear and directly out the other. He says, think over what I say, meaning the book of 2 Timothy. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. What is he talking about here? Brothers and sisters, we are called to study the word because it is when you actually think through the word that the Lord uses that to open your understanding. God designed Christian growth and Christian discipleship to be built around the life of the mind. But there is one area that I believe is more overlooked in the life of the mind than any other aspect of Christian discipline, and that is the discipline of remembrance. Look at verse 12 again. Then Samuel took a stone, and he set it up between Mitzvah and Shen, and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Whenever I go to Washington, D.C., I always make sure I get to the, the Lincoln Memorial. I love it. It's so cool. It is amazing. It's this magisterial 19-foot-tall sculpture of the great emancipator carved out of marble. And I am always amazed that when you walk in, like when you're outside on the steps, the 48 steps representing the 48 states that existed at the time, you walk up those steps of marble, and everybody out there is loud. There's always tons of people. At the bottom, there's people playing music and, and usually dancing and trying to... <laughs> convince you to give them money. All sorts of crazy things are going on out there, but then you walk in, and immediately there's like a reverence. There's like a silence. The people who walk in are, are quieted by the ambiance of what's going on around them. And they look at the speech on one side, and they, they look at the speech on the other, and they look at this great statue of this great man. It's all designed to make you feel small, and the legacy of Lincoln feel big. The stone that Samuel set up was not like that. <laughs> nothing like that. It was just a rock. And this rock was not carved. It wasn't sculpted into the shape of a general or a judge or a president. It was just a rock. 
And it was a rock that was probably set up in such a way that nobody would ever assume that it just naturally formed that way. And when the Lord gave instructions for things like altars in the Old Testament, he commanded the people that they were not to engrave stones, that they were not allowed to even touch them with tools of iron. They had to remain in their natural state. They had to be uncut stones. This was also likely uh, because anytime the Israelites started carving into stones, they started worshiping it. So what he's saying here is don't carve anything into stones. And it seems likely that Samuel, knowing those laws, probably didn't carve anything into them. He just set it up. And this rock was probably just a rock on its side. But what it signified was far more enormous than the Lincoln Memorial or any other memorial. It was a memorial telling the people, stop looking to idols for help. The Lord has helped us to this point. In my view, this is the main point of the chapter. So what I'm going to do for the rest of our time together is I'm just going to take time to apply this notion of remembrance to us. First, remember because you are forgetful. This week I was supposed to take a gift to a friend. Uh, Ashley told me, here's a bag. Here's what it looks like. Here's where it is. Just make sure you don't forget it. And I said, I would never. Oh, wait, I told you this story already. I already forgot. You have to understand, I got busy. My mind was elsewhere. How was I supposed to remember? There was all sorts of things going on. I was trying to think of what I was going to say when I got there. It wasn't that I forgot entirely, because as soon as Ashley texted me, those details were still in my brain. It just took something to recall it. It took a nudge. It took a text message to remind me that it was there. I remembered all the details instantaneously as soon as she texted me that. In fact, I don't even think I read it before I realized I just saw your name, and I was like, oh, no, I forgot it. I forgot it, and I knew as soon as she texted me exactly what I was supposed to have done. It took a reminder to bring that back to the forefront of my mind. That is exactly what we're doing here this morning. Right now, as I'm preaching, I am saying many things that you have heard before. I am saying many things that you already know. In the, in the book called Preaching as Reminding, Jeffrey Arthur says, one of the most crucial functions of preaching that it accomplishes is the stirring of the memory. Every time somebody stands here in this pulpit and preaches the word of God to you, even if you already know all of the information that's being preached, the Lord is using that sermon to be an Ebenezer in your life, to remind you, to help you remember the Lord. God is so serious about our need to remember that he has created one of the two ordinances as a regular, consistent, recurring reminder of the gospel. What are we doing when we gather together and take the Lord's Supper? Do this in remembrance of me. We are taking part in the holy practice of renewing our minds in the gospel together. We are setting our minds on things above. We don't have a stone to look at. We don't need that. Instead, we have the bread and the wine that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who himself is the chief cornerstone. We partake in a meal that causes us to remember, that nudges us. Remember the rock of your salvation. We are called to remember because we easily forget. Secondly, remember because it leads you to repentance. Look again what Samuel told the Israelites to do in verse 3. He said, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart 
to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Notice that the focus here is not just on the idols being put away. It's on the heart. God is interested in their affections. They had lost their love for the Lord. And Samuel is telling them, genuine repentance looks like loving him. Turn your hearts in love to him. Consider what Jesus said about this very thing to the Ephesians in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He said, but this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Identical problem. What is the solution according to Jesus? Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Well, where had they fallen from? They had fallen from a place of knowing God loved them and loving him in return. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. The order here matters. Do you realize that God loves you? Do you actually know that? Do you actually consider that? Do you actually meditate upon that? Most of the time when we sin, that's the first thing that we forget. We forget that God loves us, so what do we do? We back away, we isolate, we hide. Before you ever run back to the arms of Jesus, you first have to remember who he is. Remember the grace that he has shown you. Remember the love that he has objectively displayed for you at the cross. And the next thing that comes in this list is the response of that. If you remember, then you repent. And remembrance results in repentance. And then, of course, what what follows from that is good works, which brings us to application number three. Remembrance results in obedience. Why do Christians sin? Why do we sin? I mean, really, why do we do that? If we know that the Lord is good and gracious, if we know that he's kind, why do we sin? If we really believe that sin is cosmic treason against the holy God of the universe, and if we really believe that the wages of sin is death, why do we keep doing it? The short answer is because we forget God. For those who have a covenant relationship with the Lord, disobedience is described in the Bible as forgetting the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 8 has a ton to say about this, but let me just show you a couple of highlights. Verse 11 says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Here, it correlates those two things of forgetting the Lord your God by disobedience. Verse 17, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. In other words, don't forget. And verse 19, and if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Don't forget because there are consequences. When we sin as Christians, what happens is that we've shoved God to the side in our minds. And then we conveniently forget that he's in charge. And we imagine that the words of the poem Invictus are true. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But when we remember Jesus Christ, when we remember him, it will produce obedience in your life because you cannot help but see him accurately and then respond by loving him. If you see what he has done for you, the knee-jerk reaction will be thankfulness and obedience. We see that in the life of Paul. Look at what he says when he was explaining to Timothy 
about why he was imprisoned and how to think about his imprisonment. We see that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. This is what he tells his son in the faith, his protege. He said, quote, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as I preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound in chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Do you see that when Paul says, therefore, he is making a grounding statement about why he is willing to suffer? What reason to, does he give? The reason, therefore, is pointing all the way back to that phrase, remember Jesus Christ. Remembering Jesus in Paul's life led him to faithfully follow the Lord, even when it led him to imprisonment and eventually to death. Remember Jesus Christ, because it leads you to obey. And fourth, Remember by being in the Word. James chapter 1, verses 23 through 25, provides a really interesting parable. He has this little story that he tells. He says, For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he goes and looks at himself and goes away and once, at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Why do we study the Bible? What's the point? The main point of reading your Bible is to encounter the Lord there. But when you go to the Word, it's easy to walk away and immediately forget it. He talks about a man here. You know, the other day I was at the store, I was at the grocery store, and in front of me at the self-checkout line, there was a woman who had lipstick on. And there was a line of lipstick from here to about the middle of her cheek, just under her eye. And I had to think, like, most people, when they're putting that on, I don't, I don't use lipstick, believe it or not. But I imagine that when someone uses it, they probably are looking at a mirror when they're putting it on. Well, if she was, she was looking intently at her face, she saw that, and then she just walked away and immediately forgot what she was like. And she walked around the entire store. I wanted to say something. I probably should have said something. I didn't say anything. But he says that's what, people, that's what we're like when we go to the Bible. We read it, and then we walk away, and we immediately forget it. That's what a hearer of the word does. But he calls us to be doers of the word. Notice that James tells us to do this. We have to persevere into looking at it. He says, whoever looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres. There's an element here of effort that is required. He tells us to persevere in the word. It takes diligence to be an active doer instead of being a forgetful hearer. Now, I hope that you take advantage of the shepherding notes that are coming out this year. That's a tool that you can use to help you persevere in the word, to help you absorb the word, to help you meditate upon the word, to help you apply the word final point. It's not really an application. It's just a fact. It is the natural result of remembering the gospel. It is this. Remembrance results in worship. Do you want to be a genuine worshiper of the Lord? All true worship, all true worship of God begins with remembering Jesus Christ. It all comes from remembering who he is and what he has done. He is our true and better Ebenezer. Let's pray.
Father God, we ask that in all of these things, you would work in our minds to genuinely consider Christ, to fix our eyes on him, the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, I ask that for every single person in this room that you would help us over this Christmas season to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. There are so many distractions. There are so many gifts and presents and decorations and parties and cookies and exchanges and everything else imaginable under the sun. Lord, I help us remember Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be genuine worshipers, that we would be worshipers that respond to seeing Jesus with a heart of worship. I pray, Lord, that we would look to that lamb who was slain and we would rejoice and celebrate that the victory cry was made and that we are now more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who loved us. Lord, we pray all of these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.